Welcome to the Long Thread Podcast about spinning, stitching, and weaving by hand. The podcast is presented by Long Thread Media, publishers of Spinoff, Handwoven, Piecework, and Little Looms magazines. Find us online at longthreadmedia.com. Trainway Silks is where weavers, spinners, knitters, and stitchers find the silk they love. Select from the largest variety of silk spinning fibers, silk yarn, and silk threads and ribbons at trainwaysilks.com. You'll discover a rainbow of colors thoughtfully hand-dyed in Colorado. Love natural? Trainway's array of wild silks provide choices beyond white. If you love silk, you'll love Trainway Silks, where superior quality and customer service are guaranteed. The Anson County Fiber Arts Festival is the place to discover the wonderful world of cotton and hemp fibers and more. You'll find fibers from plant and animal, plus vendors, workshops, a used equipment sale, the fiber shed, and activities for the family. Plus, join the local historical society on a journey of the town's deep roots as a textile center. Visit the fair September 22nd and 23rd at their inaugural event in historic Uptown Wadesboro, North Carolina. For more information, visit AnsonCountyFiberArtsFestival.com. I'm your host, Longthread Media co-founder Ann Marrow. This month, we're looking back at two favorite episodes from our first few seasons. I spoke with Susan Druding in 2021 about her legendary fiber store, Straw Into Gold, which inspired fiber careers and businesses, along with dyers, spinners, and weavers. Toward the end of our conversation, she spoke about the free speech movement at Berkeley in the 1960s, and how in some ways it led to the founding of Straw Into Gold. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Happy to be here. It's so nice to finally meet you. I have to say that I've heard so many stories through the years of uh, what straw into gold meant for especially spinners. Can you tell me what it was like to have that shop? Oh, it was amazing. I have to say, if someone wanted to talk to me about how to start a business, they wouldn't do it the way I did. (laughs) My partner and I met at a sort of a spinning group that later became the Bay Area uh, Spindles and Flyers Guild in the studio of Anthony Carterell, who was a lone spinning wheel maker in Richmond. And he and his wife, Frances Simonoff, who was a famous weaver, who was a real character, um, she taught dyeing classes, which is where I started learning about, she dyed with Seba dye, chemical dye. But I was a graduate student for a PhD in marine ecology at Cal. And I'd always been interested in mechanical things. And a friend of mine, the other young woman who was in the department with me at UC Zoology, I went over to her house one day and she had this device sitting in her living room. And I said, what is that? And she said, it's a loom. I'm just going to put the warp on it. And I had I used to work on cars with my dad in Detroit, and I love mechanical stuff. And so I got really intrigued. And meanwhile, both of us were supposed to be getting our, our doctorates. So I put a sign up on the local co-op board, and I said, wanted loom. And for $50, I got a little four harness, a really nice little four harness, 36-inch loom. And I took it home, put it together, and there were no books. There was no internet. This was in 1965. Um, and I managed to get hold of a book on weaving and Kay Garrett had uh, the only weaving store in the area in San Francisco. And she was a famous weaver. And I taught myself to weave. And it wasn't beautiful, but I did it. I got a warp on and I wove. And somehow, I don't know how, I heard about spinning. And so I went out to a meeting at Tony Carterell's 
And there was a, another woman there who was essentially my age who just gotten out of the Peace Corps. And she had been in northern Turkey and she had learned to spin. And we decided I would teach her to weave and she would teach me to spin. And she borrowed a loom from Francis Carrell Simonov. And that was the beginning of it. And one day, about a year later, we were fantasizing at one of the meetings about we both always wanted to have a store. So we said, <laughs> let's start a spinning store, spinning and dyeing, because I had a chemistry background from being pre-med at University of Michigan. And we decided to pool our money and start a store. And the day we opened, we had $135 in the bank. We found a 500 square foot place that had no heat, no hot water. I had a 12 month old little boy. Sambra had a maybe two-year-old girl and was expecting her second child. And we were luckily, just as we had a lot of luck, we were about a half a mile from the California College of Arts and Crafts in Oakland, where there were many weavers. Nobody was spinning. So we got a spinning wheel from Finland. This was before Ashfords were exporting. And we ordered from Sweden and Finland. And remember, no email. This was all by airmail. We wrote a lot of letters and getting the mail every day was really exciting. And we pretty soon had a spinning wheel on display. And we also had Tony Carterell because Sambra had been actually learning woodworking with him. And so we had a Carterell wheel, although we weren't selling them. He sold them directly. And we started going to fairs and, and sitting and spinning and you know, the father would come up with the little girl and he'd say, look, she's weaving. And we'd very politely say, no, this is a spinning wheel. We're spinning. And we found a local guy who would save local wood that was people cut down in their yards and made drop spindles. And one day, we'd probably been in business maybe eight months. And a young man came in who was our age. And he said, I'm from Colorado and I make drop spindles. It was one of the Shack brothers. Uh, not Barry, his other brother. And we said, oh, great. So we started buying shack drop spindles. And pretty soon people were coming in and we were teaching. We weren't making very much money on supplies, but we had taken everything we had in our houses, all of our natural dyes, all of our fibers, everything. And all the shells were made out of orange crates stacked up because you could get free orange crates in those days. And somehow we filled up class after class and before we actually opened, I had been putting signs up on trees saying, learn to spin. Nobody would answer. So I'd say, make your own yarn, learn to spin. And I was teaching in my living room before we got the store open. So October of 1971 was when we opened. And at that point, we went to the bank and they said, well, if you're still in business for a year, come back and we'll talk about a loan. And we never went back. <laughs> And just gradually, by working our butts off and teaching, we grew enough that we moved across the street to an old uh, beauty parlor, which was from 500 square feet to 1,200, and writing lots of letters still. And I was always very interested in textile history and ethnic stuff. And a friend who used to go to Guatemala started bringing us some Guatemalan stuff. We got somebody who made a trip to Japan, and they brought back old kimono, and we kept adding things. And then about a year later, another store opened up the street that had been a computer company, and it was in an old Woolworth store and it had beautiful oak floors. And so we uh, went to look at it. We thought it was 5,000 square feet. So we went 500, 1250, 
5,000. But he said, no, 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 there's a full basement. And the full basement was another 5,000. So we went to 10,000. And I was panicked because Samber came to me and she said, I know this is terrible timing, but my grandmother died and I inherited some money and we're going to move up to Oregon and buy a farm. She'd had the second baby. So I was on my own. And my husband had a totally different job and didn't take part. And in walked a man with the most beautiful spinning wheel I'd ever seen. And his name was Alden Amos. And he said, somebody told me you were the person to come and see. And I said, well, I showed it to me. It was an oak production wheel. And we hit it off. Just friends, never more. And he said, what are you going to do with this place? I said, I don't know. I'm panicked. And he said, well, tell you what, if you'll give me a third of the basement for my shop, I'll move my shop here and I'll help you put shelves in this place. So he and I would go out with his old international truck when we heard there was something being taken down. And we together pulled nails and rescued wood from people's decks and backyards and lumber places. And he put up all the shelves and hooked up all his equipment in the basement and made spinning wheels there for many years. So that's and gradually, I started getting students come in from CCAC who wanted to work. And at first, I illegally traded them classes for labor. And then I made a trip to England and I found a used carding machine in Georgia that I didn't know how to use. So I went to the manufacturer in England when I was there buying fiber and they gave me all the plans and everything. I brought it back and Alden, who was a mechanical genius, he got the carding machine going. We named it Jaws and Celia Quinn started working for us and she was running the carding machine and I dyed the fiber and we made rainbow bats and they sold great. So it just, it was like Topsy. It just grew. That's exciting. So I actually didn't realize that straw was really a, a spinning shop. I tend to think of these, it's like a knitting store that has a little spinning or a weaving shop that has a little spinning, but it right. really had its, its heart was a spinning shop. And dyeing. I, because I, I taught dyeing and that was the other thing about the basement at this store. Alden helped set up a whole dye studio for me. And I taught chemical dyeing, natural dyeing, uh, leaf pounding, all different kinds of dyeing. And I traveled doing a workshop where at the end of the class, everybody left with 400 samples of colors from SEBA. Or we, and Indigo, I had a, I rented a cheap garage to package Indigo in because it made such a mess. I'd have to go home and take a shower after. But we were buying tubs of Indigo. And um, the teaching is what saved the store because that's, was my income. I took no income from the store. And I taught at Richmond Art Center. And I taught weaving, spinning, and dyeing. But we didn't carry any yarn for the first couple of years. We had no yarn in the store at all. Um, but then I kept finding fiber places that I could get yarn from. So pretty soon we had some yarn for weaving. And then somebody said, you can knit with this. I, I used to knit a little, but I'm not a great knitter. But weaving was fine. So then a French company approached us. I can't remember how. And they said, would we want to distribute yarn from Roubaix, France? Well, in my earliest life at Oberlin College, I had been a French major, right, when I first graduated from high school. So I jumped at it. I'd never been to France. So I got to go to France and try to get my French back, which I did all right. And so we distributed a French knitting yarn. And that was the beginning of growing into knitting. But weaving and, and spinning were really the, and dyeing were really the foundation. You had Alden in the basement and, and Celia running the Carter. And it sounds like it was just this wonderful hub for all kinds of fiber creativity. Yes. Oh, lots, lots of people would come by. Betty Hochberg walked in 
people aren't as familiar with her now, but she really, her spinning books and fiber books were really important. And before, well, we were still in the first 500 square foot store. She came in with her husband, Bernie, and they had been in advertising and dropped out in, I think, Colorado and came to Northern California. And I don't think she'd want me telling this, but she's passed. I taught her to spin. <laughs> it didn't. I mean, I got her going. And after that, it was, she took off and she got an Alden wheel. And, but we used to have to hide fiber because we we got our shipments just by mail from New Zealand. And by that time, we'd reached Ashford and he helped us reach some people that did colored wool. It was Ashford Sr., not Richard's, Richard's father, Walter. And um, so we would get a 25-pound sack, paper sack, of natural brown Romney from New Zealand. And we'd package it up and put it in our orange crates. And Betty would come in, and she wanted all of it. She was a spinning demon. And so when we knew she was coming, we'd hide half of it because otherwise she'd wipe out our, our inventory. <laughs> <laughs> you needed to leave some for other people. Right, right. And then I found camel hair from, you know, camel down. Um, and then we found a silk mill in Italy, uh, a 100-year-old silk mill. And he thought it was so neat that we wanted fiber. And his English was not real good and but his French was. And so we did a little letters. This is all letters. And we started bringing in um, silk cocoons and combed silk top and tussle top. And plus we started buying weaving yarn from him. And we still buy from him for, for an embroidery person, even though we're not officially in business. Um, he produces a yarn that she uses for uh, silk embroidery. But uh, just finding all these people by mail I realize now, and then we got a, We finally got a telex machine in the early days with a paper tape. It's a strip of yellow and it has little holes that are punched that represent the letters. And you have a machine, you punch it in and then you feed it into the machine that sends your message. I didn't exist anymore, but that was, and then fax machines, that was magic. So you stayed in the third space, is that right? We stayed there till 1980 and that was all on an area in Oakland that's now booming. It was called Rockridge. It is. It was then and now called Rockridge. And they were building a BART station there. And everybody said, oh, when the BART station comes in, it's going to be amazing. And we said, oh, sure. Yeah. But the rents were cheap. And there were a lot of old, like the guy next to us was an old watch repair guy who was an alcoholic. And he'd go across the street to the bar when it opened at 11 and tell us girls, hey, you girls, if somebody comes over, please call, you know, come over and get me, you know, that kind of thing. And then the and the druggist that we were next door to, he had a little drink. There was, it was like these old businesses that were still there. And then these younger people started coming in. And it it's now we never could have afforded. I think our rent in those days was, I think we were paying 150 a month for our store. And then the second one was like 1250 And I can't remember what the big one was. But then we realized we had to move because we had no rear delivery and we were getting bales of wool. And when the carding machine came, it had to come in the front door and, and there was a drop thing in the sidewalk, but it was impossible. So we spotted a place in Berkeley, which was the last place we were. And it had been a big furniture store and it was 20,000 square feet, the front building, two floors. And then there was a 5,000 square foot warehouse behind it a funky warehouse, but, and a yard in between. And I was really knew that a lease was really important. And so I got 
a five-year and three five-year guaranteed. So we stayed there 20 years and we left there in 2001. And that's when we quit doing retail because there was nowhere we could have afforded. And I was tired. It'd been 30 years of retail. (laughs) So we moved to Richmond and we bought an old funky warehouse, which we're in now. We're trying to get out of it. And it was 27,000 square feet. So it was about the same size as the store. And from there, we wholesale. And we got in depth into the whole yarn and fiber and Ashford's. And when the knitting boom took off, again, lucky. We were just lucky. Timing, I found two companies in Taiwan that did natural fibers as well as synthetics. And I still had a company in Italy and, and people that we in New Zealand. And so one of our staff who had been staff and then became our sales rep in the Northwest, Cindy Hard Gibbon, offered to take Ashford. And so we turned the whole Ashford business over to her and she moved it up to Bainbridge Island where she became Foxglove Fibers. And she wholesaled the Ashfords from there until just a couple of years ago. And Ashford took it back and are doing their own distribution now. So we were the Ashford wholesale distributor for 25 years in the States. What did you see happening in terms of trends? I mean, I, I know that all of these things are cyclical, but How did you see spinning and weaving and knitting change over the years? Well, spinning started out being a pair of carters. And if you were really advanced, you got a bench carter. People started getting, we, that original spindles and flyers group that I started meeting in Richmond became a big guild. And we used to let them meet every Sunday in the Strandool that was in Berkeley on College, the third location. And then when we moved down to San Pablo and Berkeley, they started coming down there. And we would have 25 or 30 people coming in for stuff. And they were they were into things that I hadn't even been aware of, like doing your own worsted combing. And it got much more advanced. And I still kind of liked to card myself, you know. So I didn't get into the more advanced stuff. I, I read spinoff. I had people that would come. I knew on Sundays to do workshops. But we didn't, I didn't really latch on to some of that. You know, we got to the rainbow bat and the carding machine and I, I was happy there. Um, so I saw, and there's nothing wrong with it. I just saw spinning becoming much more, could I say sophisticated, maybe? And people got niches in spinning. You know, they got experts in different things. And I think it's still going on. I I got the new issue of spinoff last week. I haven't had time to read it yet. And weaving really fell. And I think... One of the main reasons is people don't have houses as often that are big enough to have looms. So the small looms that both Schacht and Ashford do, I think, have become important um, because people can still do simple weaving and there's projects for them. Um, But as far as what I did in the old days of having a big macomber eight harness loom in my dining room, um, I don't think that happens as much. And dyeing? I haven't, since I stopped teaching dyeing, I haven't paid as much attention. Um, I started a technique I called percentage dyeing with SEBA that was teaching people to use pipettes and graduate cylinders and all that. And I taught them with cold coffee to pipette because I didn't want people drinking dye. And then I think Linda Knudsen did a book that was basically the way I, I taught. So that got out. So I don't know. I haven't I haven't kept up. Then I kind of 
got interested in quilting at one point when I needed to spend a little less time at straw before we got into the wholesale when then I had to stop quilting again. So it was like it had re- it had reached it had reached a great level spinning and I didn't need to push it anymore. <laughs> you know, I wasn't a uh, missionary. <laughs> I felt at first we were missionaries and we didn't need to do that anymore. It is amazing to see how these things cycle. I mean, the, the logo of Long Thread is 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 three strands. Mm-hmm. And whenever, you know, one of our magazines maybe maybe has a little bit of an off month, I remind myself that that they all go up and down in that yep. in that sort of ply. So Yep. So you got into quilting. What sort of quilting did you do? And do you do when, when you when Well, you do actually, it? I just actually started something a little bit more traditional making. I never had made quilts for my grandkids. And I have five of them now, although three of them are in Germany while COVID's going on because they could get into schools there. So the way I started was I have a dear friend, uh, Liza Pryor Lucy, who was both our sales rep in the Northeast of the United States. We had at one point 13 sales reps and she was a super knitter and she did designs for us as well as sales. And she also repped Rowan yarn. In fact, she'd been repping us for maybe a year and I got a call from Rowan in England and the distributor who was in the United States asking if it was okay if they hired our sales rep. It was Everybody was polite in those days. And I said, of course, of course. So she started doing a lot with Rowan and she and Kafe really hit it off because Kafe would come, Kafe Facet that is, he would come to the States regularly and she was in New Jersey and she could pick him up at the airport and he'd come and stay at her house and toss ideas around. And around that time, so it was like 30 years ago, because her daughter is 31 now, I went to a TNNA show. You know what that is, the National Needlework Show. And we always exhibited there. And her house was near New York. And so I'd take a few days and stay with her. And she said, I just finished making a quilt for my daughter, baby. And her name is, uh, her name is Alex. And I said, oh, interesting. And she said, have you ever quilted? And I said, no. So she showed it to me, got the tools out. I'm a tool person. And before I left, I think I stayed about three days. I had had a lesson in rotary cutting. I had gone to a quilt store with her. I had bought some tools. I had gotten some fabric and she gave me some fabric. And when I got home, I started doing it. And at that point, it was traditional stuff. But my background is really art. The design department at Cal was unbelievably wonderful. And we did, I did art weaving and basketry and all that under Ed Rosbeck. And so to make traditional quilts wasn't as interesting to me. So I started making art quilts and we were in an email group online called Quilt Art. And a little group of us kind of bonded and started our own little email thing. We are still emailing each other this all these years later. And one of the offshoots of that was a quilt show that we I was invited to exhibit in, and I started making art quilts. And I made one that was themed with women, where I took women's images and put them on stamps and did transfer print on fabric. In fact, if you want to see them, if you go to Google and you do drooding and quilts, just drooding quilts, a lot of stuff will come up because I wound up being the online leader of the quilting section on about.com for nine years. I have not kept the website up. It's kind of my own personal eQuilters.com, but all my art quilts are there, but also a lot of patterns that I developed. So every week I, I published 
And that kept me kind of immersed in quilting for quite a while. <laughs> so um, there's a bunch of quilts up there. I made a Berkeley in the 60s quilt because I was arrested in the free speech movement in the 60s, which is what got me out of zoology. They didn't like what I did. And I lost my National Science Foundation grant as a result. And that's when I went back and decided to go into the design department. And so instead of a PhD in zoology, I got an MA in design, which was just fine. I still go tide pooling. But that's how I got started in quilting. And during that period, Strawn to Gold was very busy retail, but we had a great staff and I was able to just spend time doing my own thing. Once we moved to Richmond and went wholesale and the knitting boom started, so you'll see if you happen to look at any of my quilts, they're mostly from 2000 and before. I took a couple of workshops from Nancy Crow, who was marvelous. And when she realized where I was, she said, I used to buy natural dyes from straw to gold in the 70s. But I'd, I'd like to get back into it. I still have an incredible amount of fabric. I've been donating to people that make masks and uh, other people in, in Richmond who needed fabric for schools and kids and stuff. But um, I still have my FAF sewing machine set up and... Um, I've been working on sort of an arty, but a real quilt for first the granddaughter, then the grandson, and then the other three, too. So Kay Fassett is also a Californian, I believe, right? And he's, he's also from, worked in. Yes, he was from Big Sur and his family owns Nepente. His sister runs it in, in Big Sur. And we actually had a wonderful knitting workshop there with him that I went to with two friends and uh, for a week. And part of it was going to Esalen, which is the kind of hippie new age. And we all did hot. <laughs> we were all naked in the hot tubs together. <laughs> the whole the whole knitting class cave, the guy from <laughs> the owner of Rowan. <laughs> it was a very California scene. Yes. That is so wonderful. And I'm sure that you could also tell a million stories about what it was like keeping Alden Amos in your basement. Yes. Alden and I... <laughs> He's, he was really a, a character. I, I miss him. I still miss him. And he taught me, he decided to teach me woodworking. So he taught me on the lathe. He taught me how to sharpen knives properly. To this day, when I sharpen a knife in the kitchen, I think of him. And things that I knew nothing about. And I taught him about, about textiles. It was a It was a great exchange. We taught classes together. In fact, I have some... I've got to send them send them up to Stephanie. I found some pictures of him teaching. He always had this long pointer that he used when he was teaching, and he would pull it out and point. And I still remember the convergence, not the one in Colorado, another one, where people were making the funky yarn on the big head spinners, and he picked up one skein of it, and we were the show was in a warehouse. It must have been, I don't know where it was. And he, we were near this big roll-up warehouse door, and he said, this stuff... This is hog guts. And he threw it at the door and it hit this triple wide door and it acted like a drum head. And the noise was incredible. He had no idea it was going to do that. But um, <laughs> to this to this day, I think hog guts. <laughs> he, was ex- he was extremely expert. I mean, his spinning wheel book, you know, was incredible. But he and I published together. We had 101 questions for spinners. And then we did another book that years later, Linda asked if she could republish and Interweave Press republished it. That was a spinning wheel primer, maybe? Was that? It was, yes. We found a printer in San Francisco and I still remember driving the, the you know, in those days we used hot wax 
to glue things down. And he always had to stop working in the shop for a day ahead of time when we were going to do the paste up because I wound up with wood fibers. The room that we did the layouts in was near his room downstairs, the big area he had. And I had sawdust all over, <laughs> all over the, the paste ups. So he'd have to not do any sanding or anything that was going to make a lot of, a lot of dust. <laughs> and we drove it over and he was gripping the supports on the, on the car. He was terrified in San Francisco. He was afraid of very little, but he was afraid of earthquakes. And he looked forward. And when he and Stephanie moved up to Gold Country, he was happy to leave earthquake country. But he was sure that while we were driving to South San Francisco, there was going to be an earthquake. And I could see it was like people were afraid of flying. You know, it wasn't I'm not being negative about him. It was just something he something he feared. You know, there wasn't much he feared. (laughs) Well, and then I don't know whether that was before or after, but there was that big earthquake in the late 80s in the Bay Area. That would have been the first in a lot of people's minds for a while. By then, he was already up north. So, um, okay, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. He was just worrying a couple decades early. Yeah. It's so interesting that you you had somebody who was making spinning wheels and then Alden came in. I mean, now my husband keeps offering to try to make me a spinning wheel and Mm -hmm. That sounds a little stressful, but I do know that there are quite a few people who have started making spinning wheels. Either I just saw like- the back cover of the new spinoff. There's a whole new company I never heard of before. So, mm-hmm. And there are people who are 3D printing small, tiny spinning. I can fit one in the palm of my hand. Mm. It's electric, of course. So, uh-huh. And it works. Yeah. Yep. yeah. Wow. 3D printing flyers. See, that was Alden's thing. The whole heart of a spinning wheel is the flyer. If you get the flyer right, you just have to have something to turn it. So, um, in fact, I'm going to have to part with some of my Amos wheels. I have, I have some he made custom. He made me an Irish spinner, you know, a tall Irish wheel. And I have two production wheels. And I still have my original Carterelle from the 60s. <laughs> An old Nagy with missing the flyer. It hasn't turned up. We're going through our warehouse now. And I... It's interesting you asked me to do this now. We are uncovering things that I had had stored. I found a 1976 copy of our mimeographed straw and gold catalog. And I didn't even know I still had one. And it was a brown brown paper. I had a Gestetner mimeograph machine in my apartment. And I would type the stencils. And we would mimeograph. And the staff would come over and I'd buy pizza. And we'd assemble catalogs. So, and it had the dyes and the fibers and, you know, and then we sold seeds for a while for natural dye plants and we got some of them seized by the Department of Agriculture. We had some of Sally Fox's brown cotton seeds and they were worried that they would spread and ruin the cotton crop. And so they showed up and seized them. (laughs) Yeah, she's, she's been writing a little bit more about over the years, what her process has been to getting to the place where she is now, where she can grow cotton. It's, it's yeah, quite amazing. Yeah. Yeah. She was one of our early, in fact, I still found a few bags of her combed brown cotton top. Now we think of spinners as maybe being a little bit offbeat, but it's so funny to think of spinning as being counterculture, you yeah. know, rebellious cotton and seeds and things like that. <laughs> yep. Is matter a weed? You know, it was like uh, they were worried about us releasing weld, which is bad for cows, I guess. Well, and woad is invasive here. No, it's woad. It's I'm sorry, woad, okay. it's woad. Yes, 
Stephanie did tell me, Stephanie Gauss had told me a story once about how one time a bunch of black cars drew up and asked her about the plant in her backyard, which happened to be linen, but looks an awful lot like hemp. (laughs) (laughs) Which looks an awful lot like cannabis. Yeah, their place is great. I taught a dye class up there one time and uh, stayed at the house. So in fact, Jaws is probably still in a shed at her house. Jaws moved up there, but I don't think it ever got used. But so, how did you how did you become a teacher? You mentioned that the teaching was really what kind of kept you afloat, but you have a background as an uh, in academia somewhat. How did you get to to teach all these people, whether it be Betty Hochberg one on one or classes around the country? Well, I started as I said in my living room before we opened the store. We were getting ready to open the store, and he was a few months old, and I started putting these signs up. I, a, a few friends wanted to learn to spin. So I did that and I thought, oh, this is fun. So, and then I taught a natural dye class where I would go out to Safeway and the co-op store and gather onion skins uh, and stuff to be ready for a class. And I'd take no more than five or six people and I enjoyed it. And then once we opened the spinning store, Samra and I realized we weren't going to have any customers if we didn't teach them how to spin and they they were fascinated. So, and there were a couple of books a spinning book. So we had some things we could show people. And then gradually the book started getting published. But there was, um, I can remember what they looked like. There was a blue cover book from England that we used that was very old fashioned with little line drawings in it. And then there was a spinning dog hair book that came out fairly early. In fact, I partially paid for my first spinning wheel by spinning Samoyed hair for a guy. And I said, I won't knit with it, but I'll spin it for you. So I I spun his, and he came in later and modeled this sweater that I'm sure shed like mad, but anyway. <laughs> so I, uh, my mother had been an English teacher her whole life, so maybe I saw somebody teach and love it, and I, I enjoyed it, and the students were fun. They To watch somebody learn how to do something that produces something was so satisfying to them, and then it was satisfying to me. And then there was a couple of textile schools in the area. Fiberworks was Pacific Basin was a very serious weaving school, and I did take a draw loom class there just to learn about it. But Pacific Basin was a place that a lot of the people I went to grad school in the design department taught at. And we had a reunion last year at John's house. She later became head of the textile de- of the design department at uh, Davis after the d- department moved up there. When Ed Rosbach retired, his wife, Catherine Westfall, became the head of the department and it moved to UC Davis. The architects and the city planners didn't think we were um, high enough up on the educational scale, the designers. They didn't. One of our arguments before they essentially invited us to leave, Cal, was where would your buildings be with no textiles? But anyway... There were people I taught with, and it was it was fun. It was just enjoyable, and the students were exciting. And then I wound up, I mean, one really close friend, he um, was a silk painter. And so he, after meeting him, he started teaching silk painting at Straw. So um, there was a lot of back and forth. The students would be a student, but then they'd be a teacher in another topic. So a lot of exchange of information. So, and I saw at this reunion we just had, they had up all of the old class lists on the walls in this, in the house. And I thought, I looked at it, I said, oh my God, did I teach all that stuff? You know, leaf printing and all kinds of things. I thought, you know, I'd have to find my notes to teach that again. (laughs) 
it is amazing how these things come around. You know, I think often often spinning will will become very quiet for a while and then when it picks up people will yeah will feel like they're kind of inventing it again but the spinning with dog hair book was published by is published by St. Martin's and before I came to Interweave I worked at St. Martin's uh-huh and that was before I was a spinner but spinning with dog hair had been in print consistently uh-huh. sometimes it seemed like a joke and the subtitle was better a sweater from a dog you know than a sheep you'll never meet <laughs> and I I mentioned it one time before I was a spinner to the to the publisher, uh-huh. and he said, I am never letting that book go out of print. Might be low, but it's one of our most consistent sellers because whether people actually want to spin dog hair or yeah. they want it as a gift. Well, as I said, now the only problem I had is I had a male dog at the time, and I had to keep him out while I was spinning the Samoyed because the first time he approached the bag, he lifted his leg and peed on it. It was like, what is this dog doing in this house? You know, it must have been a male dog. They never told me. So that was the one thing I used to warn my students. I said, if you get somebody wanting you to spin dog hair, be careful. (laughs) When you think about textile design or designers not being important enough to keep in Berkeley, now I bet they wish they had the design department because... Yes. Well, CCAC, it's not called CCAC anymore. They took the crafts out of the title, but it still has a very strong textile department. And also some of the other things that we did, for instance, I found an ashram in India and we used to import charcoal wheels, both a full-size Gandhi style and then one that was like a book. I just found three of them. I gave them to Cindy. She's going to sell them. But when they made the movie about Gandhi, we supplied two of the charcoal wheels for the film. And somebody who I knew, I can't remember who it was now, who was a spinner in Southern California had to go and teach, I guess it was Ben Kingsley, how to spin every once in a while. Oh, and then we supplied supplies for the first Star Wars movie. The bar scene, you know, the bar scene. The Star Wars cantina. Yes. yes. Okay. The, the, the raffia, the, the, the necklacey stuff that you see on her. And also the, was it Ewoks houses that were woven? We, we bought hundreds of pounds of raffia for, for them. That was, <laughs> yeah. Wow. This is, I, I feel like this is a true California story. It is. Because you've got your Bay Area and you've got your Hollywood. It couldn't have happened anywhere else, really, I think. The combination of the back-to-the-earth people. I mean, we sold, I, I blended a color of Seba dye for the Moonies. They wanted this, no, no, not, no, Roshnish, Roshnish. There was a red color that they dyed everything. And I, one of the things I did is I figured out, this is something Alden really helped with. I figured out formulas using the percent method for colors. We developed a whole line. We called them Spectrum Dyes, my initials, SD, very clever. And we sold like 30 or 35 colors, which were blended. And Alden designed a machine, he loved to make machines, that rotated and held a heavy-duty cardboard drums with porcelain balls inside. So you'd measure a pound of this color and a half a pound of this color. I had triple beam balance and put four balls in and seal it up and turn it on and it would go thumpa 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 and mix the color and then we package it and so I had a color that was the Roshnish red and they would buy it by the pound and my best feat of mixing was I made a gray I made a black that when you did it light it was gray it wasn't blue it wasn't pink it was gray that was my prize formula that is quite a feat (laughs) I feel like there's one very California aspect that you've touched on here. But, you know, you mentioned first being in zoology and then moving to design. Do you mind if I ask you a little bit more about the free speech? Oh, sure. Go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. 
So what did you do that got you kicked out of zoology? So I arrived in California in August of 64. The free speech movement began in September. My parents were lifelong Democrats. So I was already, I was never a conservative. But I would walk back and forth across Sproul Plaza every day going to the zoology department, which was on the other side. And I heard people speaking, including Mario. And it was really significant because the civil rights movement was being prevented from handing out literature, setting up tables, the whole thing, you know. So I started going at noon every day. And finally, when the announcer was going to be a sit-in, I went down to Sparrow Plaza with two friends with sleeping bags. And uh, we spent the night on the ground around the police car. In fact, somebody found a picture of me sitting by the left front fender of the police car. <laughs> and I can't find it now. And when I do, I'm going to print copies for my grandkids. And so I was arrested. I was one of the 700 people arrested. And the cops would come up to each girl and say, do you want to walk out like a lady or be dragged out like a, and they had different words. And I said, no, I'll be dragged out. So, and they dragged us up cement steps, which removed some skin from the back, loaded us into buses. And we went out to the county prison, Santa Rita. And a bunch of professors, there was one zoology professor who supported us. The rest did not. And they got us out and it's a long story, so you don't want to hear the story of the free speech movement, but there is a website, which actually I originally started, but turned it over to somebody else, fsm-a.org. And months later, that summer, I went to um, Hopkins Marine Station for marine biology. It's a Stanford-owned, and spent the summer in Pacific Grove doing that. And I had to travel back up to the Bay Area for the trials. All 700 of us were on trial, but they picked 200 of us in the area to go to the trial. And we were found guilty. And we were given a choice of being allowed off or going to jail. And the terms were that we would agree to never take part in any kind of demonstrations of any kind. And so we all decided to go to jail because we knew there were going to be other things happening. And so I was went to jail for 12 days. And at that point, I had already taken a leave of absence from the zoology department. And I was working in the physiology lab where they were doing the working on NASA for the first bios for the first satellite with a monkey in it. And it was very interesting lab work. My boss there was very conservative, the head of the lab. And so the, my direct boss, who was very sympathetic, said that I could go ahead, take the time off to go to jail, and he'd count it as vacation time. Just as luck would have it, the camera on the news that night happened to catch me getting on the bus, and the guy who was head of the lab saw it and tried to fire me. And my boss, who my direct boss, who was a really wonderful Japanese-American guy who'd been interned during World War II, stuck up for me. He was a very mild-mannered, and this guy had been his major professor, and he said, no, he said, I told her she could take vacation. I'm not going to fire her. So when he came back, I stayed at the lab through that summer, and the head of the lab put me on the worst project in the lab, which was testing monkey feces. It was an eight-hour test, and I had to pipette monkey feces. And the guy who usually did the test said to me, I've never had anybody besides me do this test, certainly not a young woman employee. And I said, well, that's what he wants. I think he wanted me to quit. So I stuck it out, and when we finished that I said, I'm quitting. I'm going into the design department. 
because I had been going into the building, which was next door to my lab, which is where the design department was. And I'd been reading all the books on weaving. And when I discovered that Ed Rosbeck was head of the department, who's somebody I had heard so much about, I went to see him and I said, would you be interested in a former PhD marine zoology student coming in as a for a master's in design? And he said, oh, I love to get scientists. He says, they just, they're the best. So I, after taking some extra classes and stuff, I got, I got in and I, I just loved it. It was just, and he was the best professor I had ever had in anything, anything, French, zoology, everything. He was brilliant and just a wonderful person. And I finished my master's when my son was two and um, had to do a show. And I did textile body cocoons, which were all art pieces. And uh, maybe that kind of led to my teaching a little bit, getting the master's, because a lot of the people I went to school with, and we stayed in touch. I still see some of them. And we get, it was a great group, a few men, but mostly women. But some of that was happening at the same time that you were starting uh, Straw, right? Yes. You said 1965? Well, 71, we started the store. And a lot of my old buddies would show up, but I also taught at the school that they started in Berkeley, the Fiberworks that was started by uh, Ginge Lakey, Lockey, who's now quite a famous artist. And the nicest thing, one Ed Rosbach and his wife, Catherine Westfall, used to come in to straw to get supplies. He made baskets and ecot and everything. And I was feeling kind of guilty one day because a couple of the people I'd gone to school with had gotten into the big Lausanne Biennale show and I said, you know, I feel bad that I did all this study with you. And, and then I started a business. And he said, oh, don't ever say that. He said, and he went like this around the straw. This was while it was still in Oakland. He said, this is a piece of textile art. He said, I can see that you have used all the things you learned to bring these things together for people. And he said, this is textile art. And I felt wonderful after that. <laughs> So did you find over time that there were just other things you preferred to do rather than sit down at a spinning wheel yourself? Well, I think the first thing I thought, I don't want to sit here and do this was a loom, unfortunately, because I, I realized I wove some yardage. In fact, I found it in the warehouse. And Betty was fantastic. Hochberg, she would spin cashmere and weave these cashmere shawls and stoles to sell. But she and Bernie had done Zen, where they said Zen for eight hours a day. I, I couldn't do that. I couldn't sit at a loom. The spinning wheel, I, I really liked. I, I would, I could listen to music. I could watch TV. You know, it was, it was just a repetitive, comfortable motion. And I think just what happened is I got so busy that I didn't have time to do anything with the yarn. I didn't want to sell my yarn. My partner, original partner, Sandra, used to sell her yarn at the store, but I just thought if I make it, I want to use it. So, and the spinning wheels have, you know, I keep moving them. So, <laughs> but I haven't, I haven't woven anything in years. I have a, I donated my big macabre loom to the textile group up the coast in California that Lolly Jacobson has. And because I had a big macabre and I also donated the, when we closed straw, I had a bunch of assembled wheels. So I, I donated Ashford wheels to them. And uh, when you ask me about quilting, there's more different things that you can do while you're making the quilt where you move around, you know, you go and you cut something and you put it up on a design wall and then you sew some together and you move it around and you get up and cut some more so I think in a way, what you just said to me is probably true. If sitting in one place to just do the same repetitive thing is is not so much me. And I think that's one of the reasons I like quilting. At the same time, you know, there there was a while when I was the editor of Spinoff when I basically didn't spin anything for years. 
and giving myself the freedom to move back and forth and say, well, I haven't quilted in a while, but I don't have to have a plan for everything right now. It can just be something that's here when I'm ready for it. Yeah. Yeah. Although at my age, I am 78. I have. To- sounds younger than it ever has to me. <laughs> Are you in California now or are you up in... Yeah, I'm in California. I'm in Richmond. In fact, I'm very near the place where I first went and met Sambra, where Tony Carterell's studio was, and the Richmond Art Center, which was one of my early teaching. So it's kind of ironical. At the time, it seemed so far away from Berkeley, but uh, it's not now. Yeah. (laughs) I'm so excited to have gotten to talk to you because, you know, as I said, straw was sort of this thing I knew about for a long time. Well, you know, one of the things, did you know they've asked me to write an article for Spinoff? Yes. Yes. And that was going to be kind of about the the textile group that gathered around straw, of which I, I mean, Linda said she came to visit and went to Alden's house and there were, you know, Lee Raven and, and Celia and everybody. And although I knew all of them, that wasn't something I took part in. And so I think it's like we were the original hub, but then there were these spinoffs. <laughs> I didn't, hmm. <laughs> that kind of, you know, people that got into different aspects of it. And then there was always this guild that was quite big and active and brought in people to teach. And they came and met for a long time on Sundays. And, you know, I, I didn't go, I had enough of it during the week. So, but, and then there were, you know, the regular conferences and, and all that. So there was a lot of exchange of information and, you know, knowledge back and forth. But I do think Spinoff did an anniversary issue of the history of spinning and, was Lee still there? No, I, anyway, I remember, I think it was Linda who said to me, you know, you were the first place that advertised and did mail order of anything related to spinning. And we had taken out a little classified ad in Handweaver and Craftsman, which was the magazine in those days, little, the cheapest classified and, you know, send 50 cents for a catalog. And we got many, many, many people writing us. And that was, we never did display ads. And I have to say, we lucked out on the timing. I mean, the whole earth catalog was just coming out. And I had friends that were writing for that. And there was the little thing about Ashford and the whole earth catalog. And I wrote them. And that's how we first started. We were the first retailers. And then when he wanted a distributor, we became the, the distributors. So, and at first we had half the country and we did a really good job and we wound up with the whole country. So, and it was great. We went to New Zealand and I got some great travel in. So, and learned how to scuba dive. So we went scuba diving in Fiji on the way to New Zealand for my 50th birthday. That was <laughs> so I would say that the whole fiber, that's the other thing about fiber. It's international. And so you could go any country and find some kind of historic textiles. I mean, I remember walking around Fiji and seeing these wonderful tapa cloths that they cover all of the tombstones with. I went to India and, you know, there were these in Nepal. Betty and Bernie went to Nepal for a year where she worked with the Tibetan rug makers. And we had made a joke. We will come and visit you because I had recommended them for this position. There were 1,200 people applying. And I said, if you get it, Loring and I, my son, will come. So he was 13 and we went to Nepal. We went on a trek up the Annapurna Range and Betty had me give a lecture on natural dyes to the Tibetan rug weaving companies. And two of them were furious because I had told them about Mordens. That was their secret. The reason their colors were better was because they had Mordens and I had given away their secret. <laughs> and I thought, this is the Middle Ages. 
it really was. And so um, <laughs> we brought an Ashford wheel with us and we got permission from Richard Ashford to let them make copies. So they had, they had been spinning on drop spindles and cotton spindles for the rugs. And so we brought them spinning wheels. I mean, it was, it was, it was really amazing. Um, and Betty then worked with them with knitting patterns. And she taught the women how to do sweater patterns. And there's a whole knitting thing from Nepal now you see at craft fairs and ethnic stores. Essentially, Betty got that started. That Ashford business is now, it's Walter's grandson, James, now. Uh-huh. Right, right. Is leads that business. Right. So. He, he, he and his husband are doing it. And um, yep. and we met them. <laughs> we still, whenever we think about it, they came to visit when he was, well, maybe nine or 10. And he was already a computer guy. And he we took him to Computer USA. CompUSA was a business then. And he walked up and down and he went, laptop, 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 <laughs> laptop. <laughs> So we still, every once in a while, Andy and I go, laptop, laptop. So, um, but he and David, I think his partner's David. name is, yeah. Um, they came mm-hmm. and stayed with us a couple times while they were going to shows and stuff like that. So, yeah, yeah. This season actually began with an interview with uh, Louis Garcia, who's a Pueblo weaver. Oh, I listened in, to that. It was wonderful. Yes. And he talks about, he talks about, you're, you're speaking of international, but he also talks about the perishable and how... In, in some ways, we have to keep renewing our fiber knowledge. Now, he developed a design based on that Tonto shirt that he talks about. My mother-in-law lived in Tucson, and Andy lived there for a while. Andy's my husband. And when we went to visit her, she died a few years ago at 103. Uh, we went to visit her, and we got to the museum, and they brought the shirt out for me. It was, they have to bring it out periodically to, you know, and she said, you know, we're a couple of days ahead of schedule, but we, we can bring it out. And I was like, oh, wow. <laughs> so when I heard him talking about that shirt, I don't know, the other shirt I didn't see, the one that he actually used for the design. Yeah, it was a poncho. Yeah, poncho. Yeah. That's right. That's right. Yeah. It's My husband's from Southern India, and I have not found a lot of textiles where he's from. The one thing I found is we went and saw somebody making rope. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's two two people. Oh my God, their hands must be so rough. You know they they walk they, away from each other and back and yeah. There's somebody with a with a crank on one end, so they walk backward and draft two singles, and then they walk forward and and ply it yep. up. Yep. And it's so, ju- it's yeah. Judas hemp. Or this is coconut. Coconut. Or. Oh, that's hard on their hands. Yeah. Well, Susan, thank you so much for your time oh, and for catching up with me. Thank you for listening listening to me for go on and on and on, but. Um, It is fun to reminisce. Absolutely my pleasure. Thank you for listening to the Long Thread Podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode, please rate the show and leave us a comment on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platform. Thanks again.